0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel.
1: The reading this evening comes from Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons, Ramalon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Let's pray. Our Father, we do come to you now under your word. We pray that you would, by your spirit, transform us more and more into your people who are uh, trusting in every good thing that you give us. That we are trusting in just indeed what we professed earlier, that you, O God, are good. Help us, we pray, through this book of Ruth, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, we're so glad that you are here tonight. If I haven't met you, I'm Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. I would love to meet you, get to know you after this service. It's it's always exciting to start a new book of the Bible together. Uh, several of you have told me. Oh, yes. Thank you. Yeah, you just yell next time, Adam. Uh, this is a lower elementary night. So if you have already checked in and have a sticker on, you guys can head out. Well, wow. As you little guys and gals move on out, uh, several of you this week have told me how excited you are about this book. Uh, Four weeks in a short, four-chapter book. Why is it that you, why is it that I, why is it that Christians uh, throughout the ages have found this short book so unbelievable, so powerful, so encouraging? Why should we spend four weeks in this book? Well, for one thing, it's just seriously one of the greatest short stories that's ever been told. The characters are interesting, the dialogue is compelling, the drama and the conflict is palpable. The resolution is really, really sweet. And related to that resolution, it's a really good love story. As many have noticed, something that makes a great love story a great love story is when the love story is of two unlikely people, Romeo and Juliet from rival families. Jack and Rose on the Titanic, uh, the poor and the wealthy, the sound of music, a failed nun, a military captain, even Beauty and the Beast, a young beauty and a monster. Uh, I'm sure we could keep coming up with dozens and dozens of other great love stories, but Ruth and Boaz are right up there with the absolute best of these stories. But why else, why else should we spend four weeks here? Believe it or not, Ruth is actually a story about Jesus. Jesus tells us this in the Gospel of Luke, that all of the Old Testament is actually about him. So just like we said about Exodus and Leviticus in the past, the entire Old Testament sets the stage. It sets the lighting, it sets the props and the soundtrack, the sound for the main character then to walk onto the stage. If we merely focus on the main character, that's better than nothing, but we will absolutely better understand what the main character Jesus is doing if we first understand the setting, the stage onto which he walks. Which, by the way, we're going to roll straight into the Gospel of Luke in four weeks from now uh, at the beginning of December, and I'm really hopeful and uh, excited that we're going to understand that book, the Gospel of Luke, more because of this book, Ruth. But then also, to paraphrase a few other reasons from one Ruth commentator, that the Bible doesn't come to us in, like, neat and systematic theology categories. So much of the Bible comes to us in story, in narrative, that then helps us place, helps us understand, helps us to trust in the doctrines that we say we believe in. So as Tony Merida says, most of us live in the book of Ruth. What does he mean by this? saying most of us live in the book of Ruth, not... In the book of Exodus. That is, we do not gather manna from heaven every morning. We do not walk through parted seas. We live by faith in God's ordinary providence. Meaning we, like Ruth, we don't usually see astounding unmistakable miracles in our lives. But if we are careful and observant, we can see the astounding, miraculous provision of God in our lives. We need stories like Ruth to lift our gaze from the immediate good or bad circumstances that surround our lives. Or to put it another way, one question Ruth seeks to answer along with the rest of the Bible is, is life ultimately a comedy or a tragedy? And I mean that in like the classical like Greek sense, meaning, uh, is the story of the Bible, is the story of the cosmos in which we are currently living? Is it a comedy, not like, "ha, ha, ha, that's so funny, but does it have a good ending, a good and happy ending, or does it have a dark and tragic and just sad ending? For the characters living in the story, and is often time for the same for us, it's not altogether clear which it is. Is Ruth a comedy or a tragedy? Well, we have the benefit of zooming out. In Ruth 1, it's not clear. In the day-to-day of our life, it may be not clear. So Ruth helps us to remind us that the story of God is a comedy. Again, not a hilarious comedy, but that God wins. Good wins. Suffering, sin, and death dies. It's good. Ruth also lifts our gaze beyond our immediate lives. Instead, also then to piggyback on Kyle's incredible sermon from last week, that this story reveals God's global and missionary heart for the nations. We'll spend some time there. And lastly, as we'll see in just a second, in a world of faithlessness, in a world of sin and darkness, Ruth and even then Boaz stand out like shining stars of clear godliness. They are models of faith, of love, of compassion and wisdom for us as we live in similar worlds of faithlessness and sin and darkness. So that's enough intro. Let's just get into this story. Uh, We're going to trace chapter one here, trying to follow the contours of like the actual arc, like a good narrative actually follows an arc of like rising action and climax and then a new setting. Uh, We're going to think through those things of a good story here under three headings, that of a faithless departure, a faithful commitment, and then a desperate return. So a faithless departure in verses 1 through 5. If you're unfamiliar with Ruth, you may have just heard Nena read chapter 1, especially these five, first five verses, and thought, whoa, that got real dark real quick. Uh, maybe you remember the later chapters of this book and feel like whenever you read Ruth, it just like fills you with warm fuzzies. And then you opened the book of Ruth this week and you're like, whoa, this is dark. Maybe you've never read Ruth. Maybe this is new and you've heard that this is a really sweet story, one of the best love stories in the Bible. And then you open up this chapter and this is heavy. Well, in verse one, we read, in the days when the judges ruled. Now, this isn't just a once upon a time or there once was a man from Nantucket or something. This is actually setting something serious. We're not sure when Ruth was written, likely either in the time of David, a couple of generations after this, or many generations after this, in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, when the people had come back out of exile in Babylon. But verse 1 is telling us that back in the time, which was the absolute moral bottoming out of our history as the people of God, the book of Judges, the time of the Judges is really heavy, is really dark. It is a hard book to read. Over and over and over again in that book, we read, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's exactly what we, we read about in that book, over and over and over again in Judges. Evil, wickedness, violence. In fact, if you look back just one, one page, The very last sentence in the book of Judges, which comes just before the book of Ruth, that's the last verse of that book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now turn the page to Ruth in those days, in those days of the Judges. This is when we're reading. And not just that, in those days, but in this place, the location— verse 1 of Ruth 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah. So Bethlehem is where we're locating this story. If you flip back to Judges, and if you've just read Judges in your Bible in a Year reading plan or something, and then you flip over to Ruth 1, you're like, "Uh uh-oh, Bethlehem. Bad things happened in Bethlehem in the book of Judges. In Judges 17 through 21, we read about one of the grisliest scenes in the entire Bible— It will make your stomach turn. It's terrible. And it's all centered around priests and men from Bethlehem. Which the violence and the wickedness of some of those priests and men in Bethlehem will actually become very pertinent to the rest of the story in Ruth. But the location isn't the only interesting part. The very word Bethlehem itself. Bethlehem means house of bread. Beth or Bet means house and lechem means bread or food. So Bethlehem literally is the house of bread. So even though there is a famine in the land, the man who we find out is named Elimelech leaves the house of his, the house of bread with his wife and his two sons to find food. He leaves the house of bread to find food. Now ordinarily, who could blame him? The history of human migration is that of of moving to find food to find security in a place where you're less worried that you might not live to tomorrow. But for these people, should they have moved? Should Elimelech and his family had moved? Should they have moved? Is it just the same as modern-day migrants moving now from Ukraine to Poland or from Nicaragua to Texas? Is this the same? Now, it's not clear what's going on with this famine. It could be that, as in times of military struggle and war, like in the time of Judges, that famines are absolutely to be expected. Just look at Ukraine right now. It could also be, though, that God is using the famine to rebuke his people and to bring them to a place of repentance. If you know the famous judges cycle, The cycle that you find in the book of Judges, that of uh, disobedience, the people find themselves in disobedience, so then God brings about persecution or loss from the people, then he brings about a judge to deliver the people out of that persecution, that then brings repentance, and then disobedience again, and then the whole cycle just repeats itself. Maybe God is using this famine to bring about repentance, and this family Elimelech is running from it. More than that, though, while they are hungry, this is the land. This land is the land that God had delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt from. And two, that they might now enjoy God there. That they might, in those days, enjoy his material blessings of peace and prosperity and security. And so we might expect that a faithful response of Elimelech might be not running from the land and the famine, but to preach repentance to his countrymen, even in the anxiety of hunger and loss and confusion, to instead trust in the promises of God to bless his people, to love his people, to be present with his people. So as Sinclair Ferguson says, instead of turning back to the Lord, this little family turns their back, turn their backs on the Lord. So turning back to the Lord, they turn their backs on the Lord, and they go to live in Moab. And what makes this even more incomprehensible is that they move to Moab of all places. If you've read Genesis through Judges, from Genesis on, Moab is a constant thorn in Israel's side, one of their chief rivals and enemies, a country of violence and of oppression and even of temptation for Israel. But off they go, Elimelech's family, off to Moab. Elimelech, whose name means my God is king though his life seemingly doesn't believe that. He takes his wife, Naomi, and their two sons into Moab. But even though they absolutely should have stayed in the land, maybe, maybe we could perhaps give them a little bit of grace if they had just gone there for one harvest season, one growing season. But we read at the end of verse 2, they went into the country of Moab and remained there. This is not just a quick trip to find some food. They went and stayed. Then we read, and we don't know when, that Elimelech dies. There's no other context. Naomi, now in Moab, away from her country and from her her social circles, her friends and family, she is quickly widowed, which is just terrible. It is sad, it is disorienting. In any culture, in any time, to be widowed, to experience death is sad and disorienting. But especially in these times where men and husbands were the main place not only of income and of day-to-day security, but also of long-term security, of land and inheritance. But all is not lost. Naomi Naomi still has two sons who can carry that role and responsibility in her life. Surely the three of them, Naomi and her two sons, surely now they can return to Bethlehem. Her sons can find wives. They can carry on their family's name and she can experience the security of a growing family. But verse 4, whoops. These two boys, they take Moabite wives, which is against the Mosaic law. Several places in Deuteronomy makes clear that to marry outside of the people of God is to invite and to welcome idolatry. Now it's possible for someone who is outside of ethnic Israel to become the people of God. Prominent Gentile women were brought into Israel in the narrative before the book of Judges. And they are commended both for their faith and for leaving behind their past idols. Zipporah, the wife of Moses, the Midianite. Rahab, the former prostitute in Jericho, among others. But the narrator here seems to just give us another bright red flashing light that this family does not seem to care much about what God has said or what he has promised. Whatever is easiest, whatever is most convenient, whatever is just present and there. In other words, what requires little or no faith at all, the path of least resistance, seems to be the, the MO for this faithless family. But even still, even if they are idolatrous Moabites, these women, perhaps these ladies can continue the line of Elimelech and the family and the family line of Elimelech can grow. Even with no social security, no Medicaid, no social programs at all, maybe all is not lost for Naomi, and she will have security and provision that comes with a growing family. These wives are named Orpah and Ruth, which I did not know until this week, until Sophia told me. Did you know that Oprah is actually named for Orpah? I did not know that. That is what Oprah Winfrey's birth certificate says, is Orpah Winfrey. But when she was an infant, many in her family didn't know of the Orpah story from the Book of Ruth and started mistakenly calling her Oprah, and it stuck. Anyway, now you know, like I know. Uh, Anyway, these two boys they marry they marry these two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth, and then another bright red flashing light of warning. Into verse four, they lived there about ten years. Ten years. They will not return to the land. And then, with again no explanation or further context or reasoning, in verse five, both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left with her two sons, without her two sons and her husband. Now Naomi really has nothing. Again, for a woman in any time, in any culture, this would have been absolutely emotionally devastating. Her husband has died, then one of her sons died, and then her other son has died. Three funerals of her closest relationships, perhaps her closest friends in the entire world within a span of at least 10 years, maybe even more compact than that. This is a familial nightmare of the highest order. Devastation, loss, that most of us could only imagine, some of us might be able to sympathize with, devastating loss, disorienting loss. But again, now even on top of that, now Naomi is unbelievably vulnerable. She is facing the remaining years of her life in which she is now likely probably in her 40s. So the rest of her life ahead of her is a life of fear, a life of hunger, a life of vulnerability, a life of destitution. Let's keep following the story. While it seems like all of these deaths and loss might be the moment of crisis and climax of the story, it actually isn't. It's just setting the stage. All of this is setting the stage for the moment of actual tension, which is just waiting to be resolved. So if we've considered a faithless departure in contrast, now let's consider a faithful commitment in verses 6 through 18. In verses six and seven, we find out that the famine in Bethlehem and Judah is over. And the narrator gives us a subtle hint at the theology at work in the background of this of this book. It's not just that it happened to start raining, that the meteorological conditions may have changed back in Judah or something. And it just so happened that the people now weren't starving, but that Naomi had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people. God had come and brought rain. He had given them food. God had returned to his people to provide, but again, it's only the material, the path of least resistance that seems to prompt Naomi's desire to return. Hey, there's food there again. I guess we can go back. Like that decision seemingly didn't even pop into her mind over the last decade. But then we've got some amazing dialogue here, beginning in verse 8. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. Go back to Moab. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Now the word here for kindly, she says, may the Lord deal kindly with you. This is a Hebrew word of hesed. this, This word is all over the Old Testament. This word just means covenant love or covenant faithfulness. What she is saying is when she says to these two daughters-in-law, may the Lord deal kindly with you, she's saying, may God deal with you with the covenant faithfulness that he has shown to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to Moses and to Joshua, which is a really strange thing to say to Moabite women, isn't it? It seems like, though, by saying these things that she believes that they have come to some knowledge of God, some knowledge of the God of Israel. But Naomi wants them to move on, to move back, to find some level of security back at home with their Moabite friends and family, returning to the land of Judah, to return to the town of Bethlehem, to return and to go there as Moabite women with now zero marital or male connections likely will not go well for them. Naomi will be lonely and destitute for the rest of her life. So she's saying, Orpah, Ruth, you do not have to join me in my destitution. This is my fate. It does not have to be yours. But in tears, her daughters-in-law say, no, no, we will go with you. They actually do love and care for Naomi. But Naomi says in verse 11, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? What she's referencing here is the Jewish practice of leveret marriage, which we'll consider more deeply as we get later in this book. But this system is so that if a woman's husband dies, then the husband's brother will then marry his brother's widow. Following me? And if there is no brother, then it would then move out Outward into wider, concentric circles of cousins and cousins and cousins and cousins, or then uncles and nephews who would then be obligated to marry the widow. Now to us, this seems so backward, so vulnerable, or so terrible and so uh, weird. But in these days, this is the mosaic system of actually caring for the vulnerable, of providing marriage, of providing children, of providing the familial and social structures and safety nets for widows, perhaps for their young children. And so in verse 12, she says, Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they're grown? So understanding that there is very little family back home, she's saying, look, even if I were pregnant right now, which I'm not, it'd be like 18 or 19 years from now before your dead husbands, then have brothers who then could marry you. That's crazy. Go home. There's no one for you. It is only destitution and hopelessness on this road to Bethlehem. But then, end of verse 13, revealing the way that she feels about God in this entire situation, which we'll dig more deeply into in the third point, she says, no, my daughters, For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me." Because she thinks that God is so against her that to attach themselves to to Naomi is to attach themselves to a life of sadness, a life of loss, a life of doom. Go home. Get away from me. Be happy. Make something of your life. And Orpah's totally convinced by this. Why? Because it makes sense. Naomi's logic is seemingly airtight. There's not one reason at all why Orpah and Ruth should go with Naomi back to Bethlehem. Maybe she is cursed, Naomi. Maybe her people will hate me, which they probably will if we go with her. And so she kisses Naomi and goes home. She returns to Moab. But at the end of verse 14, Ruth clung to her. Now, this word clung is the same word in Genesis 2, 24. That well-known verse that even Jesus quotes: that therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold flat, hold fast, or cling to, cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is what Ruth is doing to Naomi clinging to, holding fast to her mother-in-law. Ruth is not Naomi's husband. This is not a one-flesh marriage relationship. Ruth's husband has died. Naomi's husband has died. But now Ruth is committing her life to the good of Naomi. Naomi pleads with her to consider herself. Just make a selfish decision here, Ruth. Verse 15, see your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Go home. But Ruth is adamant in a famous response that, let's be honest, let's be honest, many of you actually thought Ruth said this thing to Boaz, right? You thought that what Ruth is, what I'm about to read again here, you thought that this was a response about romantic love because this, these few verses actually get read a lot in weddings, which is fine. That's great. You don't have to feel bad about that if you read this in your wedding. But Ruth says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go Naomi, mother-in-law, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. None of this makes sense. Naomi actually does seem to be cursed. For Ruth to go with her to Bethlehem would put herself in danger. And on top of that, this kind of like switching gods thing really is almost unheard of in these days. Your gods were based on where you were from. The God of your region. Ruth is a Moabite, which means that her God is the God Chemosh, not Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is that region's God. But it is actually Naomi's God that is driving this kind of commitment from Ruth. It is not necessarily her commitment to Naomi. How do we know this? Well, if she had stopped in verse 16, if she had stopped in verse 16, then this would likely just been Ruth committing to care for a sad and angry old lady. She's had a rough go, but, you know, she's kind of family now, so I'm going to go care for her at least to the end of her life. But in verse 17, she goes on, she says, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Her commitment is going to outlast Naomi's life. It would be completely understandable for her to care for Naomi and then to return to Moab after Naomi's eventual death. But the Hebrew here actually doesn't even indicate a future commitment that our English translators have chosen. She literally just says to Naomi, your God, my God, your people, my people. Something has already happened to Ruth, so we could perhaps better understand what she is saying as... Because your God is my God, and because your people are my people, I'm going with you. So when Naomi questions her again and tries to convince her again to go back home, Sinclair Ferguson paraphrases paraphrases Ruth's response is, listen, I've been converted. Stop urging me to go back. Did you hear me? I've been converted. Your God is my God. And so maybe you're here tonight and you find yourself needing Ruth here as a model of faith. Actually, to not give yourself to the God of the Bible seems easier, seems better. After all, Orpah may have gone home. She may have found a good husband. She may have had many children. She may have one day, many years from now, died peacefully in her sleep. Maybe just before she died, she thought, man, I am so glad that I did not go with Naomi back to Bethlehem. Conversion to this God of covenantal faithfulness is not always the easiest road. Jesus himself says that the road is narrow and is difficult that before committing to follow him, he says you should actually count the cost. That is, you should count the things that you will lose by following me. And he says that to find your life, you must first lose it. But he also says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his soul? Orpa may have had a full life of material wealth and happiness. Maybe but she would have lost out on God. God is not just the regional God of this little strip of land in the Mediterranean. He is the God of the cosmos. He is the God who has created Orpah and Naomi and Ruth, who has created you and you and you, and who is owed all of our worship. He is the fountainhead of joy. He is the source of fullest and anchoring contentment, regardless of varying levels of security found in material wealth, or lack of. So Jesus' invitation to you is this, come to me. All who labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He is saying to put on a yoke is actually to do the work of an ox, to do the work of work but it is a yoke of freedom of lightness and of rest it is not the path of least resistance but it is the path of life so would you consider the faith of Ruth her commitment to the God of Israel and say yes today is the day of decisive change for me as well of leaving behind old gods and turning to the Christ who will love you and will save you back to Ruth Despite one of the most beautiful and poetic expressions of faith and love and kindness ever spoken or written, how does Naomi respond to her? Ruth has just poured out her guts. And how does Naomi respond? In verse 18, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Hmm, well, I guess I give up. I can't do anything about her. She's just gonna be like that puppy who will just follow you home no matter what you do. All right, Ruth, let's go then. Which then gets us to our final scene of chapter one. This last bit has actually been, this, everything that we've just seen in verses six through 18 has been the music swelling climax of this chapter. As Ruth is pouring out her guts and proclaiming her conversion to Naomi's God and to her people, The music is swelling, and then it's like the record stops. The needle breaks and it dies with a whimper as Naomi and Ruth then, I guess, embark then on a desperate return. Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women, the women said, Is this Naomi? Now, everything here that I just read is plural. The two of them, they came, they came. The town was stirred because of them. And then the women said, is this Naomi? Ruth is completely invisible. It's been at least 10 years, so undoubtedly Naomi's life and the absence of the three men in her life that she left with has made the women really curious. There are many questions here, but none of those questions is, and who is this? Who is this that's with you? Naomi doesn't make any effort to explain. She doesn't say, hey, ladies, meet my unbelievable daughter-in-law. She is a Moabite, but get this. She has given herself to our God. Welcome her. None of that. She just says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. We haven't talked about Naomi's name yet, but it means pleasant. It means sweet. So, when the ladies say, Is this Naomi? they are literally saying, Is this sweetness? Come back. Or maybe even like we would say, Oh, it's sweetie pie, back from Moab. Naomi says, Do not call me sweetie pie. Call me bitter. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen this word in the Bible. In Exodus 15, Immediately after God delivers the people through the Red Sea, the the people three days without water, they come to a water source, they're all excited, but then they try the water and it is Mara. It is bitter, it is undrinkable, this water is. Naomi is saying, That's me. Bitterness. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. The first word that she uses of God is the Almighty. She doesn't use the covenant name of God, Yahweh, though she will. Or she doesn't even use the word of God or Lord, Elohim. She just uses the title Shaddai, the Shaddai, the Almighty, almost detaching herself from his character. He's Almighty, but she's revealing, I don't actually think he's good. And even then, when she does use the covenant name, Yahweh, which we can see in our English Bibles in verse 21 as LORD with all capital letters. She's almost accusing him, isn't she? She says in verse 21, for I went away full and Yahweh the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me sweetness when the Lord Yahweh has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Not one concession from Naomi that while all of these people here who she is talking to remained in Bethlehem, remained in the land throughout the famine, While her family left, not one bit of remorse, not one bit of apology to the people or to God. Just, I believe he's powerful, but I don't believe he's good. Just look at the wickedness and the calamity he has brought on me. Just look at what he has done to me. And no doubt, what has happened to Naomi has been terrible. So much death, so much loss, so much anxiety, so much confusion, and now so much vulnerability for the rest of her life. But all of this has even turned her even further on herself. Naomi isn't the only widow standing right here, is she? Ruth is standing right next to her, and she too has lost everything. She's lost her husband. She's lost her country. She's lost everything. But she has lost it all without anger, without accusation against God. Because does God need to be accused? Is God evil? Here's a question. Would Naomi ever have returned to Bethlehem if things had gone the way that she would have hoped they would have gone in Moab? Who can say? Here's another question. She says that she left full and now she has returned empty. Is she? Is she truly empty? Lacking all? Ruth is standing right next to her. The most loyal, the most faithful, the most meaningful person that Naomi could have ever hoped and prayed for is standing right next to her when she says that God has taken everything from me. I have nothing, no one. I am empty. Ruth must have just like pursed her lips a little bit, looked down, said her God, my God. Her people, my people. Without accusation, without anger. God is showing his hesed, his covenantal love and faithfulness to Naomi by giving her Ruth. But Naomi is blind to all of it. Ruth is invisible. Chapter one is in many ways so similar to the book of Job. Why does God allow suffering? Here's the thing. Both Job and Ruth ultimately don't give a definitive and clear answer to that question. When many of you have gone through times of intense or excruciating death in your families, gone through loss, gone through anxiety, gone through confusion, gone through vulnerability, I or any of the rest of us should never answer, here's why God is doing all of this in your life. Here's why God is allowing that to happen in your life. We don't know the answers to all of those things, but this is God's answer to Job. When he finally comes to him in the whirlwind and responds to Job's questions, we might paraphrase his entire response as, I am God and you are not. There are about 70 billion things happening at any moment in the universe, and you, Job, you, Naomi, are aware of like three of them. Trust me. Even if the good that I am working does not immediately affect you, but even if the suffering that you are experiencing might bring about good perhaps even generations beyond you, You might not even get to experience what I am doing and bringing about here in my wisdom, but you can trust in my character and in my wisdom. The story of Ruth is showing us the same thing here of God's just ordinary providence. The ordinary things of life and loss, of famine and hunger and of death, is actually bringing about his plan of redemption. Because if God is only a God of almighty power, if he is just the almighty, then he is not a God to be worshipped or to be loved, only feared and only placated. And if we only stop in Ruth 1, then maybe that's the case. No, we've, we've already seen him providing in his Hesed covenantal faithfulness to Naomi. The story is going to widen and unfold and God is absolutely at work in the ordinary providence but God is providing maybe not the things that we want but the things that we need which is what he's doing here for Mara to once again become Naomi for bitterness to once again become sweetness he will do it but it requires faith It will take time. It takes time for it to be clear that the story has a good ending. Which is why we sang earlier, we must remind ourselves that our hope springs eternal. Through life and death, we place our faith beyond, not just what we see in the here and now. This is a comedy. This is a story that has a happy ending, even if sometimes it only becomes happy beyond the lives of most of the characters. Kyle and I uh, didn't talk before this service. I didn't know that he was going to be praying for Danny, who is now likely in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. But I wanted to close tonight by sharing with you something I've shared before, I think, from the pulpit, but many of you will know of Joni Erickson Tada, who at the age of 17 years old became a quadriplegic after a diving accident into a shallow pool. And for the many, many first years of her living her new life in a wheelchair, perhaps a decade or so. She dealt with, she struggled through searing anger against the God who would have allowed all of this to happen in her life. Years of anger against God. But after 50 years in a wheelchair, a couple of years ago on the 50th anniversary of her accident, she wrote this, she said, I sure hope that I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Now, I know that's not theologically correct, but I hope to bring it, and I hope to put it in a little corner of heaven, and then in my new, perfect, glorified body, standing on grateful, glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior, holding his nail-pierced hands, and I'll say, thank you, Jesus. And he will know that I mean it because he knows me. He'll recognize me from the fellowship we're now sharing in his sufferings, and I will say, Jesus... Do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we will have trouble. Because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. Then she says, the real ticker tape parade of praise will begin. And all of earth will join in the party. And at that point, Christ will open up our eyes to the greatest fountain of joy in his heart for us beyond all that we could have ever experienced on earth. And when we're able to stop laughing and crying, the Lord Jesus really will wipe away our tears. I find it so poignant that finally, at the point when I do have the use of my arms to wipe away my own tears, I won't have to because God will. Naomi did not deserve the faithful covenant love, the faithful kindness of God. Not one bit. And so the question of Ruth 1 is not, why does God allow bad things to happen to faithful people? But why does God provide good things to faithless people? What a good God to show his faithfulness to, to Naomi by giving her Ruth. And as we'll see, what a good God to show his faithfulness to Israel by giving the entire nation Ruth. Ruth 1 ends reminding us us of how unlikely all of this is. In verse 22, Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Yes, we understand this, narrator. We understand that a Moabite is someone who comes from the country of Moab. A little repetitive, I think you would say. The narrator does not want us to forget who Ruth is. Where this story is going does not make any sense. But we're setting the stage. Not just setting the stage for this short four-chapter story, but for the entire story of redemption that is finally brought to completion in Jesus. That this is a story of cosmic redemption. We'll think a lot about that word to redeem or redemption as we go in this book, but this is a story of cosmic redemption, of the Lord Jesus forming a people for himself of every tribe and of every language, living finally in his kingdom where now finally spiritual and material blessing overlap, where there will one day be no hunger, no suffering, no death, no lack, no crying, no loss, only fullness, only feasting. And here's the hint in this last sentence of chapter 1. And they came to Bethlehem, the house of bread, at the beginning of barley harvest. Aslan is on the move. Things are happening. Our God is great and greatly to be praised. He is good and greatly to be loved. He is wise and greatly to be trusted. Oh, for grace to trust Him more. Let's pray. Our Father, we trust you. We want to trust you. We want to believe. Help our unbelief. We are so tempted by circumstances. We are so tempted toward doubting you or just tempted toward sadness and even Uh, folding in on ourselves when things are not going the way that we would want them to go. Help us to believe that you provide not the things that we merely want, but the things that we need. That you have given us all things pertaining to life and to godliness. That you would give us yourself, the bread from heaven. That you would satisfy us by your life and death and resurrection, Lord Jesus. Help us to be satisfied by you. Help us to long for the day when you make all things new, when you make all things right. Help us to not put too much hope, too much faith in today. Help us to be content in what you give us this day. Give us this day our daily bread, we pray, but help us to long for the day of your return. And we pray even now, even now, Lord Jesus, come quickly, we pray in your name. Amen. I hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.